Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. Today's guest is Neil Gaiman. I was so excited when he said yes to come on the pod. He joined me from New York, right off a plane from South Africa, where he was filming a TV show. I was very jet-lagged as well, so we kind of met each other on that level. We were talking about his most recent book, Norse Mythology, and it's based on the Great Norse Myths. The Great Norse Myths are woven into the fabric of our storytelling, from Tolkien, Game of Thrones, and Marvel Comics. They're also the inspiration for Neil's latest fiction. The gods are thoroughly alive on the page. They're visceral, playful, and passionate, and these tales carry us from the beginning of everything, like Raganork, to the twilight of the gods. In Gaiman's hands, Thor, Loki, Odin, and Freya, the gods and goddesses we've heard of, become irresistible forces of nature, and they bring it to the modern reader so we can all enjoy these myths again. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for being here, Neil Gaiman. Well, thank you for having me. Now, you've just told me about flying in from Cape Town. I've just flown in from Sydney, Australia. We might be a little kooky and crazy. We, we may well both, both be slightly out of it, but I think that probably makes for interesting listening as we randomly use words that are intended for other things. For I hope so. I think your fans will expect it. Bless them. <laughs> so we're here mostly, but I'd like to dabble in, you know, parts of your other work to talk about your most recent book, Norse Mythology. Yes, it's out in paperback right now. When did you first uh, come across these myths? I would have been about seven years old. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid, there were a line of comics in England the Odom's Press Comics, Power Comics line, um, which consisted of Wham, Smash, and Pow, which were basically all humor comics, and then Fantastic and Terrific, which were reprints of Marvel comics. Mm -hmm. So that was where I first got to encounter the X-Men and Doctor Strange and Daredevil, and it was where I got to encounter the Mighty Thor in stories that were being reproduced from the beginning. So um, I I read the story of how mild-mannered, crippled doctor Don Blake uh, gets caught in a cave in Norway or somewhere and finds a stick that he's going to use to try and open the door of the cave and replace the walking stick of his, which he'd lost. And... Um, and then he slams the stick down and it transforms into Mjolnir, the, uh, the hammer of mighty Thor, and it transforms him into Thor, uh, Norse god of thunder. And 
I thought this was the best thing in the world. I mean, at that point, you know, for the next couple of years, any stick I found, I would just sort of bang on the ground, just on the off chance. Um, never worked, but, you know, I, I was suddenly in love with this idea. Um, so moving from there to uh, Roger Lancelin Green, who was an author who wrote books for children retelling myths. He told the the tale of the fall of Troy. He did Egyptian tales and myths. And he did um, a wonderful Myths of the Norsemen. And so I remember reading his Myths of the Norsemen, borrowing it from my friend Stephen, um, eventually sadly having to return it, and but just loving these stories. And the, and the the gods that I encountered in Roger Lancel and Green were not the same ones I'd encountered in the comics. They were, they were grubbier and they were stupider and Thor was no longer this brave, brilliant, noble hero. Now he was kind of an over-muscled oaf, um, but still brave and still dangerous, but not the brightest hammer in the bag. And so that was where it began for me, just, just that love uh, would have been between the ages of seven and eight and going, I love these myths, I love these stories. Well, just the way you described it is not at all similar to how I've discovered them because I've discovered them later in life. And I think, but in that same way, I used to think of Thor as kind of the bulky, handsome guy who was usually played by some kind of heartthrob in a film. Probably Australian. I have I watched that on the plane. Thank you very much, Chris Hemsworth, I think. But um, then to discover through your book just how much more complicated this kind of dysfunctional family of gods um, is. And what was it like for you when you realised that actually these stories were thousands of years old? Um, I... What was fascinating for me was actually, I guess, when I was in my early 20s, um, an author named Kevin Crossley Holland did uh, retellings for Penguin mm -hmm. of the Norse myths. So I got to read them then and go, these things are darker and weirder than I'd ever thought. And then before I wrote American Gods... I thought, okay, I now need to read the Eddas. So that was where I went to the originals. Um, I was staying in my friend Tori Amos's house in Florida, and she had copies of the Eddas on her shelves, so I pulled them down. And again, they were enlightening. They weren't quite what I thought. I realized that normally what we do is we go into the Eddas if we're retelling stories, and just as I wound up doing, and you extract the story, but you lose the framework that it's in. And the Eddas, um, there are two Eddas. Stop me if I get boring. There's the Prose Edda by Snorri Snellston, and Snorri retells the stories, but puts in various sort of frameworks. There's different books of the uh, in the Prose Edda. There's one book which is basically... Um, a guide to poets and background information for poets. There are retellings of stories. There's, um, you have, there's, there's a sort of a history. Um, then there's the Poetic Edda, 
which consists of a bunch of poems, some of them big and filled with stories, one called the Havamal, which basically takes us from the creation until Ragnarok, the end of everything, um, and smaller, funnier, more stranger one. There's a lovely one, um, The Lay of Thrym, which uh, I actually got to retell, take this poem and retell it as a story, uh, which is the story of how um, Thor's hammer is stolen by a, an evil giant king and how Thor is persuaded to disguise himself as the beautiful Frey. I love that. It's like cross-dressing way back thousands, you know, at the creation of time. I think what I love about that story most is you have Loki, um, who is this very odd, mischievous trickster figure who lives with the gods, but is not entirely part of them. And you have Thor, and both of them are going off to the giants. And Loki is not just cross-dressing, he becomes a woman for the occasion and thinks nothing of it and obviously does not mind changing genders at at the blink of an eye, Um, whereas Thor is just angry. He hates it, he's embarrassed, he doesn't want to be there, and part of the joy and the humor, you can tell, you know, humor is a very strange thing because humor doesn't always last. Um, But the humor of a huge, bearded, angry man forced to dress up in a bridal costume and hide his face under a veil and sit there seething um, while waiting for his hammer to be brought in so he can kill everybody. And meanwhile, eating so much that all of the giants are trying to figure out how this beautiful woman could possibly be devouring um, cows and cows, salmon. whole salmon, exactly. Any food goes past. And you're going, it's genuinely funny. It's funny today. There's something about the humor of the way that things are. And you go, this will be, you could tell this round a campfire 1,200 years ago, or you could tell it now. Well, and this man, what's his name, um, Snorri Sturluson, am I saying that the you right are, way? But you can just call him Snorri. Snorri, Cause, okay. Because so, what's nice is Sturluson just means he was the son of Sturl. Um, oh, okay, it's, perfect. So can you tell us a little bit about him and why he was compelled? I mean, if you have an inkling from well, knowing his work. Snorri is is fascinating, Um he was a poet and a and a and a, a writer, um, but he was much more important at the time as a politician. Huh. He was an Icelandic politician. He was a landowner. Um, he got into all sorts of trouble. And what kind of trouble? Oh, he was a poli- mostly political trouble um, of the politics of of thirteenth century Iceland. Um, and he, he, you know, briefly was one of the most important people in Iceland, and then he was in exile, and um, if memory serves, he winds up getting murdered. So had one of those nice, big, interesting lives. Mm. Um, but what he left us was much more important than the politics. What he left us was the prose edda. And it was his writing. And what he was doing was trying to 
explain to poets um, and to and to people who loved poetry how to give them enough cultural reference on pre-Christian um, Iceland that they and the myths of pre-Christian Iceland that they could understand the poems. Icelandic poems were built around things called kennings. And a kenning is like a, a, a mashup of a, of a simile and a metaphor. Um, and, but it's a comparison. It's mm-hmm. describing something in terms of something else, which works if you know what that something else is. The, the sea is the whale road in a kenning. But there were lots of kennings that if you did not understand the myths, you would not understand. So why is, is Freya's tears are gold? Um, but you need to know enough of the stories to know why when you're talking about gold, you would use the you would use the Kenning Freya's tears or whatever. Kind of like so, a dictionary for the for future generations. Exactly. So he was, you know, he it, in in his lifetime, he watched these stories going out. Christianity was taking them out. The stories were no longer being told. Um, there are lots of stories we don't have, mm. which is absolutely fascinates me. You know, this is there are stories in. Norse mythology that I allude to because they're alluded to in, in Snorri, but we don't know what they are. Um, there's one where Hemdal and Loki fight in the form of seals for, um, for the necklace of Freyr. And it's like, it's a great story, but we don't know anything more about that. We just, it just sort of gets referenced in another story. And Were your impulses ever to, you know, take that story on? I mean, or not in, not in this endeavor? Not in this endeavor. Uh, normally it would be. Mm. I mean, normally as a writer, those are the things that you go, oh, look, there's a story waiting here. Um, it was the same with the female, the gods, the goddesses. Because um, you've got a whole bunch of them who are named, but they don't have stories. They don't have tales. We don't know what they did. And you're going, well, you, you wouldn't have had, you know, a dozen goddesses who were named but never did anything. So probably there were stories. They just aren't stories that made it down to us. You know, we have a, a small number of stories have made it through. But there were probably hundreds, probably thousands. They, you know, the nights, the winter nights are really long in that part of the world. They go on forever. And if you're sitting there telling stories, there are lots of stories you're going to want to tell, not just the same five or ten stories over and over. Well, you talk about how when Christianity came to this part of the world... And how he, Snorri, was afraid that these myths might disappear. I've also read a lot that these myths um, with these gods were actually like a religion. 
Oh, would yeah. you say so they can you explain a bit i'm just imagining well, like this place where these we we know that they were, there was so a religion people I mean, lived their lives by the gods stories oh, and the morality inside of them absolutely yeah. and um you know for the the and that went from essentially germany up all into scandinavia had variants on Odin and Thor and and Loki and the rest of them. Um, we have we have runes. We have people saying, you know, Thor protect me. They would name things after Odin. You would wear a hammer for luck, and so on and so forth. But what they weren't doing was writing down mm. and recording the practice of the religion. Which means that when Christianity comes in in 900 AD and, and, you know, it's sweeping through Germany, it takes over Scandinavia bit by bit, a king here, a king there. Um, Iceland is basically the last to go. And in Iceland, they have a big meeting and they entrust it to their wisest ruler, the wisest politician in Iceland, who actually is a pagan. He's not a Christian. And it's his job to decide. And they, they're like, we will abide with what you decide. And he went away, and he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he came back, and he said, we must become Christian. Oh and gosh. Iceland became Christian at that point. And there was, a, there was a, and you know, the pagan religion, the old ways were abandoned. Um, not perhaps quite as abandoned as everywhere else, because everywhere else, it was illegal to follow the pagan ways. In Iceland, it was only illegal if you were caught. There was a sort of a clause that said, you know, it wasn't illegal as long as nobody caught you. Um, so you you could still sort of quietly pray to Thor and the gods on your own time, one suspects. Oh, it's making me think of one of your other books, American Gods, where all the gods... Who, you know, I'm just, when in your imagination, what I, you know, gathered is that you imagine all these gods who've kind of been disenfranchised or no one's using them anymore. And they're like, what the hell? And then in American Gods, it's about, um, well, you can tell us more about your version of what it's about. But, you know, people come to America and they bring their gods with them, but slowly, like like most of us, many things they are forgotten and replaced by other gods. I didn't think of it as kind of a harking back to what happened in Iceland. I think, well, Iceland is where I came up with the idea for American gods. Huh, okay. I was, um, I was meant to be in Norway, and I was starting out in Minneapolis, and my plane took off at 7.30 at night, and you don't get on a plane at 7.30 at night and fall asleep. And it landed at around midnight Minneapolis time, which was about 6 o'clock in the morning Iceland time. And I got a 24-hour break in Iceland. So I um, I'd landed in the early morning. I thought, well, I'll just keep going till it gets dark, and then I'll, then I'll get sleep. And what I'd failed to understand was this dark. was it was July. It was yeah. it was the fourth of July and it doesn't get dark 
Um, there was a little bit between sort of three o'clock and four o'clock in the morning where it was as if the sun had gone behind a cloud. But that was as dark as it got, and which meant that, you know, by three o'clock the next afternoon, I am wandering around in a sort of jet-lagged haze of wakefulness. And um, I wandered into a tourist... Everything was closed. It was a Sunday. But I wandered into a tourist place where they had a little diorama of the voyages of Leif Erikson. And you could see him going off to Vinland and coming back. And I looked at it and I thought, I wonder if they took their gods with them. And then I thought, I wonder what happened if they left their gods behind. And that was, for me, the beginning of American Gods. That was where it all started. And so when you came to America, um, well, I read that... I'm going to do this horrible thing that I think people that interview other people must do when they say, you did this, you know, and the person sitting there going, what the hell? Like, (laughs) don't tell me what I did or what I thought. But last night flying in, I had that moment... When you come into JF, or when you come into New York, and it, the sun was setting, and I thought, how am I going to feel when I come back to this crazy city? Am I going to want to go back home? Am I going to want to stay? And that bright, blazing orange sky was there against the New York skyline, and I thought, oh well, you know, it is a pretty crazy, amazing place. I'll stay here for a moment. But I read it that you talked about coming to JFK for the first time and coming to New York and. You know, it's such a crappy airport and why don't they ever fix it? Um, But having this moment with New York. Oh, you know, for me, and I I do remember that. um, And I would also say, given the JFK of that would have been something like 1981, (laughs) it was a million times crappier (laughs) than the beautiful modern airport that is there now. It was, you know, a... Um, I believe the polite word for it is a shithole. It was it was a sad, sad, crumbling airport with huge windows and looking out across the airport at the most beautiful uh, sunset I think I'd ever seen. There were there were shades of red and vermilion and crimson in that sky I'd never seen before, um, and that you no longer see now that they put in you know pollution controls on cars. And, and planes in the same way. Um, but seeing that when I was, you know, little more than a kid was, for me, part of the romance of America. It was like, okay, this, this place isn't like anywhere else. And I remember the joy of uh, working for DC Comics and the first time they brought me to New York and walking around with that actual crick in your neck as you just stare up at these buildings that just keep on going and um, walking through canyons of, of, that were man-made, um, the wind coming down the avenues in winter and cops on the beat with huge fuzzy pink earmuffs covering their ears because when the wind touched your ears, it hurt, um, were the kinds of things that I'd never imagined before I'd come to New York. It was like, okay, this is... I didn't know about this stuff. I'd seen New York on television, but but now I'm experiencing it. It's something so utterly new. 
And so how was the disconnect between then what you'd imagined America to be and discovering what it was? I think that disconnect, honestly, is the engine that drives American gods. Um, When I wrote Sandman, the comic, I mostly wasn't in America. Um, For the first three quarters of Sandman, I was living in the UK. And I was writing a comic mostly set in America. And that for me was kind of okay because the America that I was writing was an America that I'd seen on films and on TV and I'd think, well, I may not be writing a Seattle that's Seattle that somebody who lives in Seattle would be writing but I'm writing a Seattle that somebody who has never been to Seattle but lives in New York would be writing. You know, we we both got the same uh, you know, the same media. Um... When I moved to America in 92, I started going, there's a whole America here that I didn't know existed. And there's all this weird stuff. And look, okay, it's, it's the middle of winter, and they've driven a car onto the ice of the lake. And it's there day after day. And when I ask people why it's there, I'm told, well, it, it you know... They take bets for charity on when it'll go through the ice and when it'll sink. And I say, isn't that weird? And they're like, oh, that's what you do around here. And that sort of continual feeling of, but isn't this weird? Isn't this strange? Do you think this is strange? Do you, you know, I, I drove my daughter to camp in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, and on the way back... I stopped off, I followed the signs to the cheese. And the signs led me to the side of a road where there was a huge trailer. And um, one side of it was plexiglass. And inside of it, the, the, the sign by the side of the road explained. Uh, I was staring at a um, yellow papier-mâché a reproduction of the largest block of cheese in the world in 1962 <laughs> that was displayed at the 1962 World's Fair. And now here was the, uh, a reproduction for you. It may have been polystyrene. I don't actually know what it... may have just been plastic. But here is a giant yellow block. And there are people coming and staring and driving away. And I'm going, what? What is this? Why are these people coming? Why did somebody make this? Isn't that strange? And that was the kind of thing, again, that drove American gods. What's interesting when a community or a country of people decide Mm. to all believe that that piece of cheese is important... I, it is. And what's even more more beautiful for me about all that is that nobody seemed to think it was odd. And middle America for me is filled with odd things and strange things and things that have no irony. They're peculiar, 
and glorious and, you know, things the English will be much too embarrassed to ever have around or do. Things that Australians might decide to do commercially, you know, put up. There, there are many little Australians. There's a Austra- giant pineapple. There's I a was lot. There's about a big to sheep. say, I have, I have driven of- <laughs> through Australian but towns. I think they copied America. But, but there's also, but, but each of those things in Australia that I've driven past, whether it's the giant frog or the giant sheep or cane toad, <laughs> the giant sheep or, or the giant pineapple or whatever, you get the feeling that the Chamber of Commerce thought it was a good idea and they got together and they put up this thing and, and it was kind of thought out. The joy of America is the Chamber of Commerce didn't put up the giant sheep. Some mad guy put up the giant sheep and then everybody came to watch the giant sheep and, and you know, now here's the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota and that's not the kind of thing that chambers of commerce invent. That's the kind of thing that exists because somebody started out saving some twine and they couldn't really stop. <laughs> I'm wondering, if you made up a religion, what would it look like? Who, Which gods would you choose from the Norse mythology? Which ones would you take from American gods? Would you include... Technology. I think if I was going to, you know, I, I always used to think that if the writing game fell through, I could become a freelance religion designer. <laughs> um, but I think the fun of designing religions would actually be, um, you know, tailoring them to specific people. Ooh. I would, you know, you want to begin by saying, okay. What do so, I need? Well, I, what do you I, think? You know, where do you stand on guilt? Do you, are you big on guilt? Do you want to pan- I'm not big on guilt. Okay, so then obviously that takes a bunch <laughs> of stuff out. Do we want, do you want the kind of gods who are sort of personal and available and, and who are moved by prayer and sacrifice or or even just grumbling? Or would you like, you know, gods to be impersonal things that are off, distant, at the heart of the universe and, and aren't actually going to get in touch and aren't really going to be much use at getting you a parking space? Oh, I have to think about that because it's... I'm so into, like, free will and forging your own destiny, probably because I've been in America and you think every day you've got to get up and hustle because okay, that's the so only have, way. we would have to design you a religion that was all about getting up and hustling. Or, and something, could... or someone that can then relax me in the off time so I don't have to hustle. Well, I think that's the nice thing about religion is, with any luck, if we can create one for you, where, you know, the, the hustling becomes what the religion is about, then by the same token, the relaxing becomes the other part of the worship. You that's know, right. each day Maybe that's you know, each day shall be is... shall be written into two you know, divided into two and for eight hours a day thou shalt hustle and then thou must <laughs> yog. And uh oh, and, I'm you know it's all the, the downward facing dog becomes part of the worship. As does the going to the bar afterwards and Perfect. and imbibing the holy alcohol. Do you believe in the rapture or the judgment at some point for us? I think it's like Armageddon. It's like rapture, you know, Ragnarok. Each of us gets to have our own mm. rapture, our own judgment, 
our own Armageddon. Once um, a day, not at the end of life, or yeah, it's it's all revelations are personal. I don't think there's anything that applies to everybody, and I definitely, you know, do I think that literally the rapture will ever happen? No, I do not think that. You know, those the the, the kind of cars that have. You know, if I'm swept up by the rapture, grab the wheel. <laughs> um, you know, nobody's ever going to be swept up by the rapture, and you're never going to have to grab the wheel. But it's a lovely way of seeing the world. And mostly that's what religions are. They're, they're like boxes you can stand on. They're places to view what's going on. Yeah, when you imagine the people who are so believing in the Norse myths and then us today kind of grappling with our own religions or I just got my own so I have mine now but why I mean the impulse of us humans to have a framework of belief is so strong do you oh. think it's it's changed since then or we're just the same old humans well we're the same old humans I really uh, you know that's one of the weirdest things for me about the more you read about the past the more you go, oh, it's just us. I, th I thought I thought it was like, you know, a slow ascent towards Star Trek <laughs> where, you know, we would have conquered war and stupidity and stuff on Earth and now we have to get into our spaceships and go out and bring civilization to everybody else. And it's not like that. I think we're just us. I think we're the same. We're the same people who were the Romans. We're the same people who were um, who were the the you know the Mongol empires. You know, name name your people. They were basically us, and we have better technology, and we may be better fed than a lot of them, but it's still us, and that's okay. Um, on the religion front, with the Norse, you know, there's been a huge resurgence in Norse um, worship of the Norse gods. There's a, a, the Asatra religion, um, which on the one hand you have sensible, nice people, and on the other hand you have essentially Nazis embracing it, and... It's all fairly recently made up. Um, you know, there's, there's nobody who is actually doing what people were doing 1,200 years ago because we don't know what people were doing 1,200 years ago. Um, we have a few records here and there of sacrifices, of things that were done for luck. There are things that we can figure out, but we don't know. So anything you do... Um, you're building on, you're hypothesizing, you're imagining a religion based on what information we have. And then you're starting it from scratch. I know we, we're nearly at time, but I did, it really made me so um, comforted, your book, because I just imagined these gods were just as fallible as us 
you know, they have all these powers. And I just, I thought, you know, they almost get divorced and remarried and they have half-sisters and stepbrothers and all the mess of life that is, you know, in all of our families and associations are all mixed up in this kind of amazing group of figures. I think that's true. And and there is something very, very comforting about it. I, I, I was asked a year ago when the book came out in hardback... Um, an a NPR journalist asked if we'd reached peak Ragnarok yet. And I had to say, no, I didn't think we'd reached peak Ragnarok at all. I thought there was a way to go. Um, but there's something, even in the Norse Ragnarok, even in the end of the world, it's not a great judgment. Um, it's just, yes, this giant battle is going to happen and things are going to get horrible. And then... Some people are going to survive and some gods are going to survive and it's all going to start again and we'll get a new sun to replace the old sun that got eaten by the wolf and it's going to be okay. And there's something really comforting about that. Well, I want to end on telling you who my favourite is and then you can tell me yours. You probably get asked that a lot, but... Mine are the, tell me if I'm pronouncing it right, the Valkyries. Mm-hmm. Absolutely pronouncing it right. Um, and I first encountered them in Paul que- Paulo Coelho's work, the yep. book. And, you know, in there, they're kind of manifested in these glorious dyke, bike, biker women. Um, and I use that word because he uses it. Um, and they're just the most fabulous women who are on their Harleys kind of Um, taking over the Nevada desert. But something I loved about that was all about, um, I don't know, somewhere in the book he talks about always looking up to the horizon because it just makes the world bigger again. And I think in his version, that's what they do. They're always looking up. And actually living in New York, I've used that a lot because, you know, sometimes you get in your little hole and think you're so, or wherever I'm walking is so important and just almost kind of... um, you know, we get trapped in our own heads and just using their, that looking up and taking in the sky and realising that world's a big place with all these people in it has really just helped me and been a bit of a comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I kind of revisited them in your book, um, that made me very pleased. But I want to ask you who one of your favourites is today, because it might change every day. I was going to say, it does actually change. People say, who's your favourite? I think there's there's a god called Kvasir, or Kvasir, and he's very little known. And he basically shows up twice in my book. The first time, he's created by the union of two different sets of gods and they all spit into a bowl to proclaim a peace treaty. And then he's formed out of the spit of both of these gods. And he goes, and he knows more than anybody else. And he goes down to earth and goes around answering people's questions and just reveling in knowledge until he gets murdered. And his blood... um, is used to make a magical mead that is the mead of poetry. Mm. And I love that story. And I also love the fact that because nobody in Norse mythology land had to be consistent, he shows up in a story right at the end. Um, 
as Loki has turned himself into a salmon and hidden. Kvasir does this sort of full-on Sherlock Holmes routine where he figures out from the ashes in the fireplace um, that Loki has just invented the concept of a net and from these ashes he fastens a net as well and is able to capture the salmon that Loki became. And there's something that I love about the idea of a genuinely smart god who is using his intelligence for good, um, but still gets murdered halfway through the story and then comes back. Well, thank you so much, Neil. Uh, I adored the book, and so many people will as well if they haven't already encountered it. But how can we all follow you? Because you are an avid social media. I wanted to ask you about potentially you were going to give it up at one point. Um, you know, every now and then I've given it up on sabbatical basis. I, you... I tend to keep it going these days because it's genuinely easier to have access to three or four million people directly than it is to not rely to. on other people to do it for you because those other people may not do it as effectively as you would. Um, I, it always makes me sad when people say, oh, my gosh, I just found out that you were here, you know, giving a talk in my city. Mm-hmm. How could I have found this out? And it's like, well, you could have followed me on Twitter because I told everybody. Um, Neil himself on Twitter is a really good way of following me. Neil himself on Instagram will occasionally get you mysterious pictures. <laughs> no, it's still me, but it's it's just mostly strange pictures of goings-on backstage at Good Omens and occasionally my small, incredibly beautiful son. Um, and Facebook is the other one that I keep going. Right. Neil Gaiman over on Facebook. And other than that... Um, occasionally Tumblr. Tumblr is is such an odd little social thing. Um, but I quite like going there just to answer questions. And you can sort of... People, people have really good questions about writing or about things. And if I'm on a long plane journey, I'm quite likely to open Tumblr and go, what are people asking? And write a few replies. Well, everyone tune in and thanks again. Oh, thank you. That was great fun. Thank you, Neil. I hope this episode got you thinking about what kind of religion you would like to make up for yourself if you could. I certainly liked the one that Neil came up with for me. Let me know at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to get in touch and tell me who else you'd love on the show and I'll do my best to track them down so they can come on the pod. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.